This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to a colleague, a friend, the author of the IMF, the WTO, and the Politics of Economic Surveillance. The book was published by Routledge. Uh, it has a very long name. If you had spelled out each of those acronyms, thankfully they haven't because we all know what those acronyms are. Martin Edwards is the author, and I have the pleasure to have him on the phone right now. Martin, how are you doing? I'm great, Heath. Thanks for taking the time. I'm a huge fan of this work. Um, I I love that you've listened before. I love that I've finally had the chance to get you on the podcast because we have been colleagues for a while. Um, How is South Orange? Uh, Maybe you can tell us about where you are and and, uh, a little bit more about yourself, and then we'll talk about your very interesting book. So, uh, who are you, Martin Edwards? <laughs> wow, that's a that's a difficult one. Um, so, okay, so I'm an associate professor in the School of Diplomacy and International Relations at Seton Hall University. Um, I've been here since 2006. Um, have a degree, a PhD in political science from Rutgers, and I, um, I'm when, when I'm not sort of thinking about the IMF. I am an associate editor for International Studies Quarterly, so it's my job to um, read manuscripts that come in from scholars and help them sort of navigate the path to publication. Yeah, wonderful. And in 11 days, what will be happening to you? Ah, well, <laughs> yes. In 11 days, I'll become department chair. And so my goal is to get through July 1, and hopefully there will be no um, no hiccups, no stack of resignations on my desk <laughs> and we'll go from there. Right. And how intimidating is it to have an incoming department chair just publish a book, right? That is the motivation that everyone needs is to have their well, department chair yeah. as, as well published as, as you are. It, it is, it is uh, one of the things that they want us to do to kind of set the tone. And so quite obviously I can't set the tone for people being scholars if I'm of course not one myself. So. Yeah. So, so let's, let's talk about this book. Uh, all these acronyms um, and this this idea of economic surveillance. This is not a concept that I think is is um, that firsthand for most political scientists, most most people who aren't knowledgeable about the subject matter. So let's start right there. What is economic surveillance, and who does it? Okay, sure. So um, one of the things that international organizations do period, is monitor countries. Okay, And I use the word surveillance because that's actually 
the word that the IMF has always used to describe its practice, um, which does make it a little difficult because people hear surveillance and they think of Edward Snowden. Um, and yeah, I don't have any secret documents, um, you know, nor have I been, you know, nor, have I, nor is there a movie about me. But rather, it's the act of, it's the day-to-day work that international organizations do of monitoring countries. And this holds in all sorts of areas. This holds in human rights. This holds in the environment. Um, my work is sort of more, I find the economic uh, international organizations more interesting, and so I'm naturally drawn to them. So the day-to-day work of these organizations, um, which is separate from lending during crises, which is you commonly think of what the IMF does, or uh, adjudicating trade disputes, which you normally think of as what the WTO does. It's this sort of work that I'm focusing on. And the reason why you know, it, that it's not common um, among sort of political scientists is that it's, is, is that it's kind of understudied. Um, we tend to focus more on, on the crisis activities of these organizations and not their day-to-day work. And so I wanted to call attention to that in this book. Yeah, and, and there's this, this sort of give and take between these international organizations and countries and the, the sharing of information, how much information is, is, a, is available, uh, the accuracy of that information is, is much of what this book is about. Um, you, you write at the, at the start of the book, and I, and I quote, just because a government is transparent does not make it virtuous. What, is this, what does this mean exactly? And, and what are the implications of, of uh, the transparency that governments have about uh, economic policy and economic data um, and, and their motivations for sharing it? Yeah. Okay. All right. This is, okay. This, this is an interesting point. I think normally when we think about transparency, we always think about this as a good thing, right? And, and I think that that's, you know, certainly true in many phases um, uh, certainly of our individual lives. It'd be great if you knew what a car actually costs before you purchase it. Um, that the relationship between countries and these organizations that they themselves have created is a different one than you and I as consumers. And so what that means is they are, um, in the case of the IMF, for example, the fact that I can even study this material is a development in my lifetime, right? That countries have chosen to let these reports become public. Um, and that has, that involved a lot of, a lot of wheeling and dealing behind the scenes where a member country said, okay, fine. If we, you know, how do we do this in a way that doesn't harm us? If our economy is actually deteriorating. Um, and also at the same time, you know, countries, have incentives sometimes to misrepresent. Um, Greece did this most notably with the European Commission, which was one of the things that led um, that it sort of stated that things were not as bad as as they turned out to be, which sort of deepened um, its its own financial crisis. So, government, you know, transparency by its we have to realize that governments choose transparency. And so with that, it's not necessarily the magic bullet that we assume that it's going to be. And, and who, is, who, is the, um, who is looking to this information? Uh, who's, who's using this information? 
the IMF and WTO and others uh, are are sort of processing this. They're then issuing reports. Um, who who might be re- reading those reports? Why why is all of this? Why does it matter? Yeah. Well, <laughs> well you know, again, one of the things that these organizations are trying to do is steer the steer the global economy, right? The WTO focusing more on trade openness, the IMF wanting to make sure that countries adopt policies that are consistent with growing the world economy without harming each other, right? That's sort of a legacy of, you know, World War II. We learned that economic cooperation between countries unraveled, and obviously that was problematic, right? That's an out, sort of an outgrowth of the Great Depression which is you know, kind of when we started to create these organizations in the first place. The WTO came along a little later, but that's the sort of the genesis. So who reads these reports? Um, these reports are read by other member governments. They find them as information. You know, the, um, I talked to the IMF about this. They, they, one of the staffers told me, do not think for a moment that other, other countries don't care about what we say about the world's largest economy. And I thought that was, that was really, that was really telling. Um, financial markets, you know, can respond to this work instantly. And, you know, in, uh, in emerging market economies, you know, it's as these reports are released and depending what the tone of them are, financial markets respond accordingly. Um, countries, you know, also, sometimes respond to these reports in other ways. Most uh, notably last year when the fund was releasing its sort of its pre- preliminary findings on the U.S. economy. On the other side of town, the Treasury Secretary issued a statement critiquing the IMF for having the audacity to question that we can't have 5% growth and that you know, the tax cuts might not have been a good idea. Um, so, you know, there, there is obviously this give and take. And so, you know, there are folks looking at this. I think the challenge is that the influence of this information, and this is kind of one of the bottom lines of the book, doesn't percolate as far as we might like. Um, we always think about, you know, scholars think about international organizations as they provide this information. Okay. So if that's true, then you would expect that we might talk about this in the media, or members of Congress might reference the findings of these reports. And what I consistently find is that uh, you know, the media and certainly the U.S. Congress, as kind of a sine qua non for you know, domestic actors, don't use this information. In, they don't reference it in their decision-making. So that's obviously a challenge. We want you know, the fund and the and the WTO want these this enterprise to be successful, but just because again, just because you release information doesn't necessarily mean um, politicians are going to change their mind as a result of things that you suggest. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, 
to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, this raises a, another uh, sort of larger context of the book and, and why this matters uh, right now, uh, which is the rise of populism mm-hmm. um, that has been um, uh, taken different forms in different places. Um, but what is often thought of as a largely domestic trend uh, but you suggest that it has something to do with uh, the role of these international organizations and the role of the information that they're sharing. So what does populism have to do with this? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I do think that, that you know, what these organizations are pronouncing is a verdict on the economy that is thought to be impartial, that is separate from what... Um, the White House or a member of the president's economic team might say. So the extent, so to the extent to which that is a critique, that is a challenge, right? That that um, reporters that were covering this, you know, this mundane review of the U.S. economy last year, their phones all lit up at the moment that Secretary Mnuchin, Mnuchin issued this issued this. Um, press release, basically saying we disagree with the fund's bottom line. Um, so the, to the extent to which that is an impartial and, you know, a technocratic view of government policies, this, you know, this is something that, that countries can can push back on. Um, and the, 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 the WTO is the, sa- is the same thing, uh, functions in the same way. It released a review of the U.S. economy at the end of the year. And in the discussions of those reports, there were all there were um, all sorts of member countries who were critical of the U.S. for adopting policies that are closing off trade rather than expanding it, or for stifling reform of the WTO itself. And I just remember reading the transcript of this, and I was just sort of struck by the fact that the. Um, Chinese ambassador to the WTO referenced Stan Lee, and he said, you know, the Stan Lee quote on Spider-Man, which is, with great power comes great responsibility. And he's saying that the U.S. has great power, but it's not behaving responsibly. And it was just sort of, it's a remarkable, it's a remarkably different world sometimes comparing the, these reports, which are often very subdued, right? They're not designed to be scathing or critical or even newsy with how governments respond to this, which is a little more inflammatory and a whole lot less diplomatic. Now, this does raise the sort of the empirics of the book. Uh, you collected um, some varied information. Uh, where did you collect this information? And uh, what did you exactly measure uh, when it came to uh, these different reports and, and the reaction to them? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a tricky thing to get at. Right, because you can't really ask. You, I mean, you can ask policymakers in some sense. Do you listen to these things? But then you have to think. Okay, that's that's modulated, and that might not actually represent reality. So what I looked at was um, how financial markets respond, and this is a straightforward um, econometric test using you know available data on interest rates. I looked at how um, sort of the effect of releasing trade policy reviews on potential trade disputes by looking at 
whether or not governments um, break or bend um, international trade rules and then whether they initiate disputes later on. And those are straightforwardly political science empirical tests. Um, for a lot of the work on, on influence and on effects on the media is intentionally a little more descriptive because um, there I'm just trying to get a sense of, hey, if we think about these organizations as providing information, then is it the, is it the case that we actually see these th- reports referenced in the media? And I look at, you know, LexisNexis searches for U.S. and foreign news publications. And I look at um, information sources on Capitol Hill to get a sense of, do these, are these works referenced in um, congressional discussions as well? And so as a way, and that's a little more descriptive, but that does get the claim about whether the information that these organizations are transmitting has some resonance domestically and and do they uh and 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 if they do uh or if they don't what is likely to get a one of these um economic surveillance reports uh to show up in a in a news outlet and where what kind of news outlets uh are we looking at here is this um the the major newspapers or more of the the trade presses yeah i tend to I, i actually find that you know it's the more it's the it's the more specialized um, the more specialized works are where you actually see see traction. So, so electronic newsletters on the Hill that cover trade will certainly talk about what's in a trade policy report, right? And those are those are referenced more for specialists. But you know, in a very real, but and but at the same time, this doesn't make the newspapers. And you know, it is kind of interesting because, in a very real sense. The, since since these reports are public, they do try to craft them increasingly in a way that makes them readable. And it, you know, sort of, if if you can figure out uh, what's going on with the economy by reading the Washington Post, this is not that much. This is not a great reach for you. Okay. So, but that but that challenge is that there's not a whole lot of resonance there, um, and as you know, as folks in D.C. have said, well, you know, said to me, well, you know, there used to be a guy who wrote about this and he's no longer at the Post. And they sort of changed his beat. Um, so he's not, they no longer have a dedicated IMF person. And so that's kind of why that, you know, you see some of these, some of the, these low levels of media engagement. But I do think, you know, in some sense, as a check on what governments are saying, you know, the fact that they, that these reports don't have the oomph that one might think um, is a little disquieting. And certainly these institutions are concerned about that. Um, both of them are trying to think, okay, how do we make sure that our findings are engaging the public um, in different ways? And so they're, they're wrestling with this challenge, uh, mindful that you know, they have to think about how to how to package it and present it in a non-expert fashion. And, and what would change if, if there was more uh, resonance, if there was salience that, that came from uh, the release of these reports, what do they anticipate changing and, and why do they view that as a, as a positive change? Mm-hmm. Well, 
what these, you know, what these organizations are after is making sure that their advice has traction. That's sort of their goal. Um, what would that look like? That would look like um, their proposals being discussed or their proposals even being referenced um, more substantively. And I'll give you a, a sort of a concrete example. The, um, the, the preliminary findings on the U.S. economy for this year were just released a week and a half ago. And there was a lot of discussion on inequality in them, which is, which is not terribly, which is kind of revolutionary for the fund, because normally we don't think of this organization as particularly caring a great deal about inequality. But there was a lot in there that you would find having resonance with um, a whole lot of campaign sp speeches right now. You know, how do we, how do we ensure better jobs? How do we ensure worker, you know, higher quality worker training? Um, there was a straightforward advocacy for a carbon tax, which is also kind of interesting because you know, sort of politically that that's not happening with, you know, the Congress and the president with this makeup. So I do think, I do think that what these organizations want is kind of, um, maybe not countries unequivocally adopting their ideas, but they do want influence and sort of a greater acknowledgement of, of their findings. Um, you know, what would yeah. that look like that, you know, that would look like this being these, these findings actually being covered and countries and countries and politicians responding to it. Um, you know, I think that the challenge is for these organizations that they have to, they don't devote as much effort they, into communicating these results, especially with established, you know, um, capitalist economies, uh, perhaps as they should. And so, yeah, for, they, for, so for them, the, you know, the challenge is, well, how do, you know, since, since the U.S. is never going to borrow from the IMF, how do we ensure that the things that we say, even about, you know, making sure that the financial system is more stable, right? That, that these things are um, things that politicians care about. Yeah, it seems to be an obvious solution here, which is the uh, economic surveillance podcast. If you <laughs> launch the economic surveillance podcast, you would reach the world. Uh, until then, uh, Martin's book, the IMF, the WTO, and the Politics of Economic Surveillance is available from Routledge. The book was published this year. Uh, Martin, thank you so much for your time today. All right. Thank you so very much, Heath.